Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 20th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A federal judge has ruled that a workers' compensation excess carrier is not bound by a WCAB decision defining the date of injury. Here's what happened in the case of BART versus General Reinsurance. General Reinsurance issued an excess insurance policy to BART, the San Francisco Bay Area Rapid Transit District, which is a self-insured employer for workers' compensation. The claim involves Michael Gonsolin, who worked as a BART police officer and who filed a multiple myeloma workers' compensation claim. BART settled the case with Gonsolin at the WCAB, which entered a partial order approving compromise and release with an open medical award. One week after the settlement was approved, BART sent a notice of claim to General Reinsurance, its excess carrier, asking them to foot part of the bill. BART contended that Gonsolin's injury occurred during the policy period and BART had reached its retention limit, triggering General Reinsurance's coverage. General Reinsurance contends that it has no obligation to pay because Gonsolin's injury occurred after its policy had ended. The federal court had to decide whether the parties can litigate the date of injury or if General Reinsurance was bound by the decision of the WCAB. The court held that it indeed had jurisdiction to adjudicate the correct date of injury and that General Reinsurance was not bound by any determination at the WCAB. The doctrine of issue preclusion may operate as a bar to litigation of an issue that was decided in an earlier administrative proceeding if the parties had an adequate opportunity to litigate the factual issue. The doctrine of issue preclusion does not apply here because General Reinsurance was not in privity with BART in the workers' comp proceedings. Clearly, this case points to the need for an employer to have a strategy that would involve and bind the excess carrier to the outcome of the underlying WCAB case in order to avoid this type of double bind. A new labor code now requires that a California-based professional sports team cheerleader be deemed an employee with the full protection other employees receive in California. The new law will only apply to a California-based team, which means a team that plays a majority of its home games in California. It also only applies to a professional sports team, which means a team that either a minor or major at a minor or major league level in the sport of baseball, basketball, football, ice hockey, or soccer. This new labor code provision is the aftermath of litigation between cheerleaders and various teams across the country. The Oakland Raiders were sued by a group of current and former cheerleaders who alleged that the Raiders refused to pay minimum wage or overtime made unlawful deductions, and also refused to provide meal and rest breaks. According to the lawsuit, Raiderettes were paid a flat rate of $125 per game, irrespective of the number of hours they worked. No payment at all was paid to the cheerleaders for events such as mandatory charity appearances. 
Similar lawsuits were filed against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the New York Jets, the Buffalo Bills, and the Cincinnati Bengals. Attorneys for the Raiderettes and the team agreed to a complex settlement formula that will cover any cheerleader who has worked for the team since the 2010-2011 season. Cheerleaders will receive $2,500 in back pay and penalties for the 2013-2014 season, plus $6,000 in back pay and penalties for each of the three seasons before that. A year ago, the Raiders tactically admitted their sins and offered their new cheerleaders, uh, cheerleading squad a contract that nearly tripled their pay. Their annual compensation will rise from about $1,250 to about $3,200 per year. The Raiderettes will also be reimbursed for business expenses and mileage, which they had to cover themselves before. They will also receive paychecks every two weeks rather than one lump sum at the season's end. Proponents of the new law argued that professional sports cheerleaders should be guaranteed a legal wage for attending and participating in team practices, rehearsals, preparations, meetings, and required workouts. In addition, they would also be covered for all required appearances at corporate, community, and charity events. There was no official opposition noted in the legislative record to this new law. And now our fraud report. A new poll conducted by Employers Insurance found that 13% of small business owners are concerned that one of their employees would commit workers' compensation fraud by faking an injury. It also found that nearly one quarter of small business owners have installed surveillance cameras to monitor employees on the job and that one in five business owners feel unprepared or unsure of their ability to identify workers' comp fraud. Employers Insurance said the message of protecting your business from fraud resonates more loudly with businesses who have already been the victim of fraud and seen their workers' comp premiums rise. In the last 18 months, Employers Insurance reported three cases in California where workers' comp fraud was proven because of surveillance videos, which showed the workers staging their injuries. Two of the cases were in restaurant kitchens, and the other was in a warehouse. The videos show the workers doing things like rearranging furniture or objects, then kicking the objects, then screaming out in pain and getting hauled off in an ambulance. All three cases were investigated, criminal complaints were filed, and convictions resulted in merely a matter of months, hyperspeed for the state's unwieldy criminal system. The survey was based on interviews with 501 small businesses that have fewer than 100 employees. A contingent of local and state law enforcement raided a San Jose marijuana dispensary and arrested its owners and manager for illegal marijuana sales and workers' compensation fraud. Police and investigators from the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office led the operation at San Jose Organics, 
aided by agents from the State Board of Equalization and the Employment Development Department. Officials said the search of the club stemmed from an investigation into illicit marijuana trafficking and possible tax and workers' compensation fraud. Authorities arrested on the site the business manager, Brian Wong, a San Francisco resident, and the owner, Ben Liu, was also arrested in San Francisco. Agents carried boxes of evidence out of the storefront shop for further investigation. And in regulatory news, Cal OSHA cited Magoria and Galati Incorporated, a Bay Area engineering and construction company, following a fatal accident at a Petaluma construction site last April. 28-year-old Jared Overfield from Novaccio was killed when a 40-foot steel pipe being unloaded from a forklift rolled down a slope and crushed him. He had worked for several years as a pipe layer for the San Rafael-based construction company. At the time, Overfield was working on a construction site as part of the Highway 101 widening project. The pipe weighed approximately 8,000 pounds and was not secured to the forklift. It was unloaded directly to the ground without any chocks or barrier to prevent it from moving. Cal OSHA issued three citations to the company for failing to recognize and plan for the hazard of transporting the steel pipe, for failing to survey and plan for the hazards of uneven ground, and for not securing the pipe during transport. The three citations total $38,250. The company's records and show that over the last 10 years, five Cal OSHA inspection reports occurred with three violations. The company is involved in both public and private work construction in the Northern Bay Area since 1964. The National Safety Council is calling on employers to develop workplace policies around the use of opioid prescription painkillers. Many workers who have taken opioid painkillers following on-the-job injuries have become addicted and suffered additional injuries or are fatally overdosed. The findings are detailed in the Council's new report, Prescription Pain Medications, A Fatal Cure for Injured Workers. The president and CEO of the National Safety Council said that addressing the use and abuse of prescription painkillers is as important as identifying drug and alcohol abuse in the workplace. Workers who use opioid painkillers for more than a week to treat on-the-job injuries have double the risk of being disabled one year later. Workers' compensation claims costs also skyrocket. To help protect injured workers and mitigate liability, the Council has a number of recommendations for employers. Employers should work with the insurance carriers to identify inappropriate opioid painkiller prescribing and adopt procedures to manage the worker's opioid use. Employers also should ensure that medical providers follow prescribing guidelines and use state prescription drug monitoring programs which track prescribing history. In California, this is the Curie's database. 
Employers should also expand drug testing programs that include testing for all common opioids. Employers are also encouraged to download the free Prescription Drug Employer Kit from the Council's website for resources and tips on how to develop policies and manage opioid use at work. Founded in 1913 and chartered by Congress, the National Safety Council is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to save lives by preventing injuries and deaths. An aggravation of a medical condition as a result of treatment for an industrial injury can become a compensable consequence claim. And industrial injuries resulting in pain and inflammation are commonly treated with NSAID pain medications. The acronym NSAID stands for non-aspirin, non-steroidal, anti-inflammatory drugs. But now the FDA is strengthening an existing label warning that NSAIDs increase the chance of a heart attack or stroke. NSAIDs are widely used to treat pain and inflammation. They are available by prescription and over-the-counter. Examples of commonly used over-the-counter NSAIDs include ibuprofen such as Motrin and Advil, and Naxoprin sold under the brand name Aleve. Celebrex, Cataflam, and Voltaren are examples of prescription NSAIDs. Aspirin is also an NSAID, but it does not pose a risk of heart attack or stroke and is not covered by this new warning. The risk of heart attack and stroke with NSAIDs was first described in 2005 in the Boxed Warning and Warnings and Precautions section of the prescription drug labels. However, the FDA was not able at the time to determine that the risk of any particular NSAID is definitely higher or lower than that of any particular NSAID. The risk of heart attack and stroke achieved special notoriety with uh, Vioxx, a type of NSAID called a COX-2 inhibitor. It caused as many as 140,000 heart attacks in the United States during the five years it was on the market. Vioxx was removed from the market in 2004. The regrettable experience with Vioxx raised awareness about the cardiovascular risks of NSAIDs and led to further studies showing that the risk is not limited to Vioxx, but it is associated with all NSAIDs. There's also an increased risk of heart failure with NSAID use. Most NSAIDs have a variety of other potential risks and complications associated with them, including kidney disease. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a sweeping bill to speed new drugs to the market. The bill, known as the 21st Century Cures Act, would require the FDA to streamline its drug approval process, consider more flexible forms of clinical trials, and incorporate patient experience into its decision-making process. A similar bill in the Senate is expected to be voted on before the end of the year. The program would be paid for with the sale of 80 million barrels of crude oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve over the next eight years. The strong bipartisan support for the Cures Act in the House, together with broad support from the Obama administration, 
are strong indications that the Senate will approve the Cures Act with small changes. The House bill would increase funding to the National Institutes of Health by nearly $8.75 billion over five years and increase functioning to the FDA by $550 million over the same period. The bill would also create incentives for companies to develop drugs for rare diseases. It would also allow certain antibiotics to be approved based on more limited testing and establish other measures to shorten the drug development time. The DWC has posted proposed revisions to the Workers' Compensation Information System, or WCIS regulations, and the two California EDI implementation guides published by the DWC. EDI is the computer-to-computer exchange of information in a standardized format. In workers' compensation, EDI refers to the electronic transmission of claims information from claims administrators to the state workers' compensation agency. Data are transmitted in a format standardized by the International Association of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissions. This organization is a professional association of workers' compensation specialists from the public and private sectors and has spearheaded the introduction of EDI in workers' compensation. The guide is being revised to improve reporting efficiencies in response to feedback from trading partners and to increase the usefulness of the data received by WCIS. And in other news, 12 new state studies from the Workers' Compensation Research Institute aim to help CFOs and other stakeholders identify ways they can improve the treatment of an injured worker after a claim. The studies are based on interviews with nearly 5,000 injured workers from across 12 states. The research found that a worker's fear of being fired after an injury had a large and pervasive effect on costs and worker outcomes. The fear of being fired may arise out of the relationship between the worker and the supervisor being one of high or low trust. If the relationship is low trust, the worker is more likely to fear firing when injured. Overall, workers who were strongly concerned about being fired after the injury experienced poorer return-to-work outcomes than workers without such concerns. Concerns about being fired were associated with a four-week increase in the average duration of disability. Workers who were strongly concerned about being fired also had higher rates of dissatisfaction with the care they received when compared with workers who were not concerned about being fired. Workers concerned about being fired were also much more likely to report problems with access to care, and many reported big problems getting the services they or their provider wanted. Another CWCRI study published several years ago on attorney involvement found that the character of the employer relationship was a factor behind hiring an attorney because of fear of being fired.
That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.